Since we ended the Swedish dominant phase of the war last time, it's time we moved on to France becoming a bigger player than they already were, or at least a more active combatant. So today I'm going to cover a basic and simplified French history starting around the 16th century or so, which is 1500 for those of you who don't know what the century means 100 years before that, whatever. Secondarily, French history is rather deep and to cover a lot would take a whole podcast in and of itself. So I'm just going to give you guys a simplified enough one to give you background to understand the motivations, their culture, their military strength, and then we'll move on. And secondarily, I'm going to give a biography of Cardinal Richelieu, the architect of France's foreign policy and their strategies in the first several years of France's full involvement in the Thirty Years' War and in the lead-up to, well, the current year. Well, of the war, not current, current year. But with that, let's get started. And since today is going to be a simplified history... I will say, if you're interested in these topics, there are plenty of books on those, and I encourage you to find your own research and follow your own interests if any of these topics interest you on your own. By 1500, France was a monarchy ruled by the Valois dynasty after the dying out of the previous one a century or two beforehand. Lack of male heirs, cousin dynasty, or cousin family, those are whole things. France had already thrown out the idea of serfdom and some aspect of feudalism in the aftermath of the Black Death, Although feudalism was still in swing at this point, but pe- the people were more free to move around, which was one of the things serfdom did, which is lock you down. France is also one of the most populous countries in Europe during the 16th century, and their territory steadily grew in the 15th, 16th, and 17th century, and reached close to their borders in the lead-up to the Thirty Years' War, with places like Nice and other more Italian holdings still not theirs, along with some of the more German territories. You'll probably not see in this podcast, but there's a reason Alsace and Lorraine and stuff were fought over by Germany and France for a long while. France was going through its own renaissance at this time as well. Its art and culture were blooming, especially after the Italian Wars, where France got involved in the messy conflicts of the peninsula, taking many artists, poets, musicians, and other skilled people to enhance their own court. I'll get into it a little bit, but that's also a mess in and of itself, and maybe a subject of another podcast I potentially might do. I'll have to see what books I can get, etc. But it is an interesting war if any of you are interested in that sort of topic. The Italian Wars and the French involvement in them were also the start of the little under seven decades of conflict between the Habsburgs and France, which included Spain, too, because Spain was Habsburg under Charles V, and then he split it up into two kingdoms, aka the HRE in Spain. So, yeah. Again, it's a mess, like, this whole time period. So, just keep that in mind. The French Renaissance will get its own little section a bit later in this podcast episode. But right now, I plan to cover the general dynastic and governmental stuff. The Valois dynasty would last until 1589, when it was replaced by the Bourbon dynasty we all know and love. And both of these families, along with the previous one, belonged to the Capet family, which is why when Louis the Sixteenth was executed, he was referred to as Citizen Capet, which is the Capetian family. Royal families would have cousins, and that would be the next person in line for potential claims to the throne. That whole mess. We call it the Ancien Regime, or the Old Regime, in the modern day, but that's more of a post-French Revolution term to describe the old government, as they wanted to emphasize this was the old government and this is the new one in terms of the French Revolutionary government. So, if you hear it, it's very much a propagandistic historical tool, but for more more or less, we've accepted that as just what we call it. Although, usually with the less accusatory name and just the general neutral, this is what it's just popularly called. Both dynasties made efforts to try to centralize their power 
power. Though the Bourbons had more success in that field, especially when the Sun King would come into rule. Although he would come into rule after the Thirty Years' War, so not this time. And a constant thorn in the side of both these dynasties was the conflict over religion, with the Protestant Huguenots being something of a recurring conflict, as shown in an episode earlier about Richelieu dealing with internal politics in France and sieging La Rochelle, that whole thing. Religious conflicts were a central issue in the same for most people, especially Central Europe and Western Europe, due to, you know, the whole Protestant thing. And it was messy to say the least, because many French Protestants were powerful lords in their own right, so they couldn't just be ignored or pushed to the side. The army was centralizing, but a lot of lords still had enough power to create armies and pay for their own mercenary forces, etc., which would not be good for the kingdom. The regime also had to deal with the expenses that came from war and territorial expansion, as well as competing against their rivals, such as the Hasbrook and the English, who still laid claim to their throne. Henry VIII, in particular, spent a lot of money to compete with France, which caused France to do the same, and a tourney where they're both trying to show off their opulence kind of turned into a war or a small conflict and, you know, dick-measuring contest, effectively. And keep in mind, the concept of paying for, like, you know, healthcare, the well-being of your citizenry, and all that deal in the budget is a new idea. Because back in the old days... You didn't have the money to do that, because you were spending most of it on military stuff. Either paying troops, for campaigns. There's a whole rising trend, which is generally after Napoleonic era, or Napoleon fell, of less money going to the military, more money going to more civil infrastructure. So, when I talk about budgets, most of the budget was going to the military. But this was universal across at least Europe, because they were constantly fighting, as very apparent in this war. But getting back on point, the Hasbrooks were the bigger rivals for France at this point, as the Hundred Years' War had ended with France consolidating its hold over most of its territory, leaving the English with little holdings in France, which would eventually fall by the mid-16th century. So France was always needing money to raise for its war, wars, which is certainly during the coffers, and this was a constant cycle of taxation, raising more money and empty coffers, on and on you go, adding more to debt potentially. And this was also happening at the same time as the shifting loyalty of the patronage system to the institution of the crown and the government, which was organized by the intendants and run by them. Previously, this system was run by individual noblemen being loyal to the king and getting money from the king directly and that sort of thing. But now it's not just the king, it's the whole structure of the monarchy, which made it less loyal to the individual kings and more loyal to the kingdom as a whole. The intendants were representatives who ran provinces of France and were there to enforce the will of the king and to undermine the power of the nobility in that area as the intendant would have a lot of civil power. This is where the idea of the Sun King came from, which was basically, if I have all these people focused on me, especially at Versailles, they have less time to worry and organize about rebellions and rising up against me and, you know, standard government, nobility, coming up with plans to sabotage things or compete with other people at the downside of the government. So it was very much a start of that. And this would centralize the power of the monarchy, or at least theoretically centralize the power of the monarchy, although it was a slow-going process. The Sun King still wanted war, or, you know, wanted war for political gains, but he was a good example of what the French were trying to do with the government, at least. The French effectively tied authority to having civil positions in France, which tied them to the government for their own influence, which further tied them down, which means they were less tied to their independent wealth and more their powers based on their perceived and civil values. This would create long-term problems by the time of the French Revolution, but before 1630 or so, it granted the monarchy relatively more central authority than they had before. But moving on, 
on from the monarchy, we move on to the French Renaissance. The French Renaissance began in the late 15th century when the Italian wars brought people and ideas from Italy into France. This covered the spectrum from art to architecture to even gardens. There are a lot of things that sprung up from it, but to give you some idea of stuff that came from this period, Leonardo da Vinci joined the French court, and many of his paintings are still in France at the Louvre, particularly the Mona Lisa, which he brought with him from Italy. He already painted it by this point, but it came with him as he traveled to France, and the Italian art culture got into the French art culture, and they started taking ideas and evolving them. That's why France started to become a hub of artistic life for Europe for centuries to come. Artists like Jean Foucault and Germain Pilon grew out of this new rebirth of art in France, for example, and the rather famous chateau look that we know and love today comes out of this as well which were generally complemented by large walking gardens like the one you see at versailles which was a gigantic one but that sort of walking garden and pleasing symmetry and all of that this comes out of the french renaissance this more specifically came from the idea of measurement and proper proportion in art and in like growing plants etc chateaus aren't exactly the best for military defense but they were great at showing off how wealthy and cultured you were and nobility would like they do Pete over who could afford the fantasy art in houses, which only grew the art patronage system. And literature and art grew in this time as well, although I'm not going to focus on that because it's not really a central part of this podcast. But know that literature and music were just as important as, like, visual art, if that makes sense. But moving on to military aspects, France going into the 16th century was a strong military power in Europe. And by the mid-16th century, they had around 5,000 cavalry and 30,000 footmen as a relative standing force. Although those were prone to rebellion due to pay and... Well, not pay, but squabbling nobility and the like. The Hundred Years' War with the English had ended, so the major wars in the first part of the 16th century was the Italian Wars, which, while it did create a renaissance from, you know, all the art they got, it was drained of the coffers, and the Habsburg gained more political influence and power from the war, along with more control over northern Italy. During this time, the French also fought against the Spanish, which I showed before in other episodes was a recurring rivalry, the Battle of Pavia in the Italian Wars being a good example, although this this time, the Atria and the Spanish were ruled by the same person, so it was kind of natural that that would happen. It was also in this mess of wars that when France took Calais from England, the last part of English holdings in France, which was not something they were happy about, but they would really never get a chance to get French territory back again. The next big wars were the French Wars of Religion, which were begun at the Massacre of the Huguenots, which was a result of building up tension between Christian faith and Catherine Medici, the Queen of France, not being able to stop the growing divide. She has a whole story and is a complex individual, but due to this, we're not going to focus on that. It's just, she was a last straw to try to stop all this, but it was just getting worse and worse. And by the time the massacre happened, nothing was going to stop the various conflicts with the Huguenots. Various outside forces intervened to join the, both the Protestants and the Catholics, with the Huguenots opposing absolute monarchy, which put them at odds with the throne's centralization of power, and, well, the monarchy really couldn't stand for that. The war went on for a couple decades, but by the end of the conflict, it was a war between the three Henrys, which had Henry III assassinate Henry de Guise, who led the Catholic League, and was then assassinated himself. The Protestant Henry IV was then crowned as King of Navarre, when the Valois dynasty died out, but by 1592, he had converted to Catholicism to take the French crown, which was required as no Protestant could rule the French crown. And near the end of the 16th century, he allowed private practice of any religion, 
although France was a Catholic country. And by the 17th century, France had begun expanding in all directions, be it in Europe, Asia, America, and Africa, which the sort of colonization and all that, but we're not focused on that. So to keep focus in Europe, France generally took an anti-Hasburg stance, Cardinal Richelieu coming to power under Louis XIII in 1624, which I will cover a little more detail later. And the only real conflict in the 17th century worth note up to the Thirty Years' War was the huge interval they talked about that happened in 1628, which started in 1625, and was started by the English supporting them to try to get more power and influence. So all in all, France was a military power that everyone took seriously, and would fine enough bring more legitimacy to the Protestant cause as they were another major power. Because Sweden, even depleted as it was, was still a threat, and France was another person who could bring significant force to that alliance. Granted, I still find it funny that France joined the Protestants, which it makes sense if you know in context about the French and the Pope and all that, but it's still really funny from an outsider perspective. But with the history of France covered, we're going to move on to the biography of the good cardinal. The famous cardinal of France was born as Armand Jean de Plessis on September 9th, 1585 to Francois de Plessis, the Lord of Richelieu, and Suzanne de la Porte a famous jurist. He was the fourth of five children, and his father died when he was five in the wars of religion, leaving his family temporarily in debt, which did get resolved before it got too bad, so it wasn't too much of note. He was educated like most young noblemen, trained to become an officer of the military as a younger son, although he did show a dedicated scholarly side to himself, as well as a devious cunningness to himself. His family was rewarded by Henry III with the bishopric Lucan due to their service, although they ran into the issue around money and getting it, which was resolved when Richelieu was sent to the clergy in the place of his older brother who ran away to become a monk. Long story short, it was technically the church's land, technically, so they were like, hey, this is our revenue, and a deal was if one of the sons would join the clergy, they could get the revenue stream, which would make sense if you wanted to ensure that you had influence in money from that place. By 1606, he was nominated to become the Bishop of Lucan, which he had to get special dispensation as he was too young to be a bishop at the time, which he did get. He was heralded as a reformer, one of the first to institute the doctrinal changes of the Council of Trent I mentioned in the setup of the podcast, which was a slow integration across Europe, although it did happen gradually. But his rise to power began when he became a representative of the General Assembly as part of the clergy in 1614, pushing against any taxes levied against the church and advocating for their political power, as well as that of the nobility. The assembly did not go well for those involved, as it was dissolved by 1614, but by the end of the assembly, he was actually nominated to be the clergy to speak for them and list their talking points and their what they wanted and that sort of thing. But he was nominated as the almoner of Queen France and of Austria, Almoner just like meaning the family clergyman, effectively, which gave him a lot of influence and reach in the royal family. He did experience a speed bump after years of service, which was about 1618 or so, which was due to the policies created by Consino Consini a mentor and backer of his, which proved to be unpopular, which resulted in his death and Richel losing his political influence. So he was sent back home and ruled as the bishop over that, which he never lost that status, he just was somewhere else. And again, exiled from Paris, he did his due diligence and served his time, but he was called back to mediate between Louis XIII and Marie de Medici, who was his mother, the king's mother, which freed Marie from her previous bounds, which was a whole conflict between the two of them, restoring her royal status. And Richelieu was put back in good graces from this, so he rose in influence again, and by 1622 he was officially ordained a cardinal, granting him his iconic red robes. 
In the upcoming years, he proved to be indispensable as an advisor, hitting a small speed bump again when he became the well, part of the Royal Court of Administrators and intrigued against the Duke of Vuville, which he ultimately won out on when his rival was arrested due to charges of corruption. This placed him as the primary advisor of the king, and he realistically ran the kingdom, his plans the one leading France. But it was clear he was all for building up the strength and prestige of France, even if he had to do dirty deeds to get it done. We see this political intrigues, and it's clear he was willing to play the long con or break rules of him advancing France's position, as well as playing hardball with advisors and various European kingdoms like with Sweden. He wanted France to be the dominant power, and if he had to snub a few people for that, so be it. I do think he was genuinely loyal to France, and while he did put his own people in business of power to maintain control over the system, he was doing it, you know, I say for the greater good, but in the sense of he wasn't just a selfish advisor doing it for his own deeds. He put his people in position, but they were doing decent for the country itself. France could have a worse puppet master than him, is what I'm saying. But as we've caught up to the current time period, we are now at the end of his biography, so we'll move on to the war next week. So, with that, I'll see you guys next time, and I want to thank you all for listening and for keeping me coming back to this podcast. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOTHEMO.com. Reminder, I have a Patreon. Thanks to those who support me. Interview and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>